Last week, we began a new sermon series in the book of Acts. And so if you have a Bible, would you please turn with me to Acts chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a red one nearby you on the chair. And if you are using the red one, uh, Acts chapter 1 is on page 530. And as you're turning there, let me just recap briefly where we've been. So last week we launched this sermon series, and this series is about the launch of the church. We're titling it The Birth of the Church. And the book of Acts follows the early disciples, the apostles of Jesus, as they are commissioned to go into all of the world and to share the message of Jesus, to expand his kingdom throughout the world, to bear witness to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And last week, we saw that Jesus sent his disciples out on a mission. And he told them to wait into Jerusalem, wait there until they would receive the power from the Holy Spirit that would enable them to go all around the world. It was the Spirit that would ignite their lives and launch the church. And this small community, when they were filled with the Spirit, they really did take to the world. Because in just 28 chapters, we see this mission go from just a few people in Jerusalem, in the upper room, in one house, spread across the known world. Chapter 28 ends with the Apostle Paul taking the witness of the gospel, the truth about Jesus, to Rome, where he is going to talk to Caesar. That is the mission that Jesus has sent his followers on, to take the message of the gospel throughout the world. And in our passage today, they are waiting in Jerusalem for this power to fall on them. And as we look at this community that is ready to take up the gospel, we need to ask ourselves, what makes a community ready to go on mission? When we're starting a church, when, when they're thinking about starting a church, there's a lot of things that need to be in place. You know, when I started Story Church, we needed to get funding, figure out how to do that. We, we had to figure out, hey, what is our website going to look like? Let's get some good pictures of people having fun. Let's have a good social media presence so that people can find us. There's a lot of things that I think needed to go into helping start this church. But the apostles didn't have any of that. So what did they have? What made them ready for the mission? That's what we're going to look at today. At Story Church, we have a mission too. We believe that Jesus has called us here, that he has gathered us here to be a people who are inviting our neighbors into a new story that is shaped by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so let us look at this early church and ask, what made them ready for a mission? And we're going to find three things in this passage that made them ready for the mission. We're going to see that this community was dedicated to prayer, rooted in the truth, and they were captivated by a vision. They were dedicated to prayer, rooted in the truth, and captivated by a vision. Let's read Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 12. And then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. 
And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man, Judas, uh, he acquired a field, and with the reward of his wickedness, uh, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akodama, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all of this time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, let us learn through your spirit how you prepared and equipped this group of men and women for the mission that you are sending them on. And may we, through your spirit, learn how we can too be equipped. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And so we see the first thing that characterized this community as they waited for the spirit to fall on them for the mission to take off. We see that this community was dedicated to prayer. They were dedicated to prayer. Look with me again at verse 14. After they returned to Jerusalem, it says that they, uh, all of these, the disciples, with one accord, they were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. They were devoting themselves to prayer. Luke wants us to see here that the disciples, they returned to Jerusalem and they were waiting, but they were not waiting idly by, sitting on their hands, just waiting for the promised Holy Spirit. No, they were devoting themselves to prayer. And how was that prayer described? Luke says that they were praying with one accord. They were united in their prayers. This doesn't mean that it was like a written prayer and everyone was just saying the same prayer over and over again. It means that they were united in their hearts with their prayers. So no matter who was praying or whenever they were praying, they were all praying for the same thing. They were all praying together, united. 
What was that thing that they were praying about? Well, they have just returned from seeing the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, ascend into heaven, ascend to his throne. And as he went, he promised, I will send my spirit to you, and he will empower you to take the gospel to the world. That's what they were praying about. They were praying about the mission that God had given them. They were praying for the spirit to come so that they could finally be unleashed into the world. They were praying that God would give them what he had promised to give them. It is is as this first church community prayed that the Holy Spirit would fall on them. And man, we should learn from that too. That as we come together in prayer, we ought to expect God to pour out his blessings upon us. We see these men and women with one accord devoting themselves to prayer for the Spirit so that they can fulfill their mission. I love giving gifts to my children. This Christmas was uh, different than any other Christmas ever, and for a few reasons. The first being the obvious one. We weren't able to see family, and so we Zoomed with them, and, and that was hard. But the second way that this Christmas was different than any other Christmas was because we didn't see our grandparents Uh, we had all of their presents at our house for our kids to open. And and our whole living room was just covered in presents. I mean, more presents than I'd ever seen in my life. This is how crazy it was. We started opening up gifts. Our kids opened up gifts at 7.30 in the morning. And we opened up the last gift at 4 in the afternoon. I mean, all day long. It was ridiculous. It was so much fun. I was exhausted, Sarah was exhausted, but Theo and Julia were just so full of joy every time they got a new gift, tearing the gift apart, opening up to see what it was. And because they were filled with joy, it was filling me with joy. I love to see my kids get something that they want and find happiness in it, and it brings me joy. How much more joy do you think God feels when he gives us his promised Holy Spirit that fills us with joy. The early church gathered to pray for the Holy Spirit, and we will see throughout the book of Acts that it delighted the Father and the Son to send the Spirit to empower them for the mission. But Luke also says that they weren't just with one accord in prayer, but they were devoted to prayer. And that's hard. Like, I know that praying can be difficult, and it's especially difficult if ever you've prayed for something relentlessly, and it just doesn't seem like God is granting your request. I know how tired that can become, how weary we can get when we pray for something and we don't get it. So how can we be devoted to prayer? How can we be continuously in prayer? How can we be steadfast in prayer for the mission and not grow weary? I think that we need this shift of attitude. Prayer is not this institutional activity where you have to make sure you're saying the right words and not saying something wrong or offending God. You know, we need to make sure that it's not this cold, dead religious activity. Prayer is a relational activity. 
It is something that two people, persons do, us and God. Just look at how the disciples pray at the end of this passage in verse 24. They're praying about who is going to replace Judas, and this is how they pray. All they say is, you, Lord, know our hearts. Look, they're praying as if they believed that Jesus was right there in the room with them. It is a relational activity. And when we understand that prayer is just that, simply talking to God, then that frees us to pray with steadfast commitment. So what would it look like for us to pray in this way, to pray for the mission that he has sent us on at Story Church? What would it look like for us to pray knowing that Jesus listens to us as if he's right there in the room? And wouldn't that change how we pray? We can pray for the things that God has promised to give us and fill our hearts up with joy knowing that he wants to give them to us. Here are three promises that God gives us in the New Testament that we can be praying for. He says the, the harvest is ready, but the laborers are few. So pray to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the field. Would you pray that God would continue to send laborers to this church because the harvest is ready? He says that when the Son of Man is lifted up, that he will draw all men to himself. Would you pray that as we lift up the name of Jesus, that God would draw non-Christians to us and hear that message of the gospel? Jesus promises to build his church and that the gates of hell will not stand against it. Will you join me in praying that God would build this church, that we would face any opposition that comes our way, and that he would be the one that gets all the glory. Here's a helpful way to pray too. Consider doing this. This is more of a practical thing. Hey, Sunday nights, the beginning of the week, maybe you set aside some time, maybe in your, you and your spouse, you and your family, set aside some time and choose seven things to pray for, one a day for a week. Here, here's some helpful things to pray for. Pray for your family that they would come to love Jesus more and more. Pray for a friend that you know that you know is lost. Pray that they would hear the message of the gospel. Pray for a neighbor. Maybe you don't know their name yet. Pray that God would place you in their lives to meet them. Would you pray for me that as I lead this church that we would be centered on the gospel and always and forever caring about loving our neighbor, would you pray for us as a church that we would continue to invite neighbors into this new story shaped by Jesus? Would you pray for this community, whether that's Mayfield Heights or Lindhurst or the east side of Cleveland? Pray that more churches would come and proclaim the gospel. And would you pray for this country? The Lord knows we need to be praying for this country. Would you pray for the elected officials that we have who are leading us into the future? So there's seven things. Try it this week, would you? This early church was dedicated to prayer, and that made them ready for the mission. But they weren't just dedicated to prayer. They were also 
rooted in the truth. But what was that truth? We have to be really careful when we define the truth that the Christian church is rooted in. Because throughout the generations, throughout the centuries, unfortunately, there have been Christians who have said, this is the truth that you need to believe from Scripture, and here are some other truths that you must believe in order to be a Christian. Other Christians have demanded adherence to a particular set of beliefs that go beyond what Scripture has called us to. And so we need to be careful what we mean when we say the truth. This past week, I sent out an email to many in this church in light of the events that occurred in our nation's capital on Wednesday. In that email, I admitted my frustration that when I turned on the news, I saw amidst the mob banners proclaiming Jesus saves. And yes, Jesus does save, but I'm terrified that there are Christians. I know that there are Christians today that say to be a Christian is to be rooted in this truth, which includes a particular political agenda and perspective. But when we look at the New Testament, when we look at Scripture, and what is the truth that the early church was rooted in, it is a person, Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and resurrection. So that's why we have to be very careful with the truth that we proclaim. When I say that the early church was rooted in a, tr a truth, I mean they were rooted in a person. That was their message. They were not saying, hey, come and join this community because here are the 10 steps that will make your best life now. This was not a community that said, hey, come and find inner peace. This was not a community that said, hey, come and believe our political agenda. This was a community that said, come and believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That was their truth. That was their message. Look with me at verse 21 and 22, and we'll see that here in this passage. So the apostles are determining who is going to take Judas's place. You remember Judas uh, led the, the, the people to arrest Jesus. He betrayed Jesus, and he committed suicide. And so they're replacing Judas in the mission. And it's as they're doing this that Peter stands up and says this. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John, until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. We might even go more precise and say that more than the general life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the truth that the early church was rooted in was the resurrection of Jesus. That was the linchpin of their belief. That was the thing that sparked this movement. And I understand that the resurrection can be difficult to wrap our minds around. Maybe you have doubted it before. Maybe you do even now. Maybe you've got a friend who has questioned, hey, is this even possible? It seems too hard to believe. Someone who was dead coming back to life. Like, I, I get it. And this is always going to be a safe place to bring questions and doubts. Let me, for a brief moment, speak to that. 
Let me offer one argument that we see in this passage as to why we ought to believe that the resurrection happened. The author of Acts, Luke, he wrote the Gospel of Luke too. And in both his Gospel and in this book, he goes out of his way to make sure that we, his readers, know that he is not making this stuff up, that he has gone to people and asked them what happened. He has gone to eyewitnesses and said, tell me what you saw. The resurrection happened. And Paul will later tell us that Jesus appeared to over 500 people, many of whom were still living at that time. Luke is telling us, if you are doubting the resurrection, go and ask them. They saw it. They will tell you what they saw. You can believe it. Scholars will agree that the earliest Christian writings, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians and the first letter to the Corinthians, are filled with comments presuming that the resurrection happened. The earliest Christian documents, written two, maybe three decades after this event, proclaim that Jesus raised from the dead. There is plenty of witness accounts here in Luke's writing for his readers to trust that it happened and for us to read it and trust that it happened. I know that might not be enough, but maybe that's enough for you to begin to consider whether or not you believe the resurrection happened. The resurrection was central to the life of the early church. And it should be central to our church too, our own individual faiths. The resurrection, this conviction that God had raised his son Jesus from the dead, made this group ready to go into the world and proclaim the message of the gospel. Because without the resurrection, the gospel, it's not good news. But if Jesus rose from the dead, our faith is not in vain. The gospel that we believe is true. And here are four ways in which the resurrection of Jesus informs our understanding of what God has done for us through his son. First, the resurrection reaffirms that Jesus did, in fact, die. Now, I, I, that seems e easy, but if Jesus said he was going to die and die in our place for our sins, the resurrection affirms that that happened. That Jesus went to the cross in your place and in my place and bore in his body the sin that you and I deserve to pay. He paid that debt for us. And his resurrection affirms for us that that happened. But secondly, the resurrection shows us that the death did fully satisfy God's wrath towards our sin. In his death and resurrection, we know with absolute certainty that all of our sin has been paid for, past, present, and future sins. There is no more need to atone or to make up for your shortcomings. Jesus Christ died and was resurrected. His payment was accepted by God. 
Third, the resurrection demonstrates the authority that Christ now has, risen from the dead, ascended to the throne. He leads us, he guides us, he directs us. His word has authority over our lives. And the resurrection proves that that's who he is. Yes, we are called to love Jesus, but we're also called to obey him as King of kings and Lord of lords. Finally, the resurrection of Jesus provides a foretaste of the new life, the new era, the new creation that is going to come. It is a foretaste of the restoration of all of creation around us. This includes the reign of justice and peace. It means that there is going to be an end to sin and decay and corruption. And we see a foretaste of that in the resurrection of Jesus. When the apostles picked a new leader, they needed someone who could testify to the resurrection because the resurrection helps bolster the message, the message that we take when we go on mission. This early church was ready for mission because they were rooted in truth. But finally, they were also captivated by a vision. And it was that vision, that vision coincided with the resurrection itself. Because in the resurrection of Jesus, they saw in flesh and blood that God was bringing about this new creation. He was starting a new era in history. He was beginning a new epic in the world. We are, we are witnessing in the resurrection the presence of that reality. Look with me at verse 20. Peter quotes from the Old Testament about Judas the disciple who betrayed Jesus. And Peter says this, let another one take his office. And then at the end of our passage in verse 26, Luke tells us, and they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. What is happening here is that there's this vacancy in the group of apostles. Remember, Jesus uh, in his ministry took his disciples, and he went up on a mountain, and he came back down and said, I am selecting 12 of you to be my chosen apostles who will start this mission. There were 12 of them, and that might seem like a good number, you know, not too small, but not too big. It's sort of the Goldilocks number, right? No, there's reason to 12. In the Old Testament, the people of God, they were called Israel. Do you know why they were called Israel? Because they could find their lineage to the person in Genesis, who was called Israel. His first name was Jacob. Later, he was called Israel. And Jacob had 12 sons, the sons of Israel. And these 12 sons, they had children. And each one of them had children. And it became this huge people of God, each a part of one of the 12 sons of Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel come from this. When we think of the 12 sons of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, it was a way to describe this new community that God was forming, this community of hope, a community that would go into the world and say, come and worship the God Almighty. Leave your other idols and come and worship the one true God. 
That is what Israel was supposed to do. And Jesus, in commissioning 12 apostles, is saying, there is a new community now. It's like the old one, but it's different. Look, in the old community, they were pointing ahead in time. So every king that they had, everyone said, I can't wait for the better king to come. Every priest that they had, they said, I can't wait for the greater priest. When a prophet would come, they would say, I can't wait for the greatest prophet of all. The community in the Old Testament was a community of hope, but they were always looking forward into the future. But this community that Jesus is sending out, they're a community of hope that doesn't look to the future, it looks to the past. It looks to the person of Jesus and says, hope has come. Hope is here. Hope is in the person of Jesus, and we are a community that points to him. It is a community pointing to hope because it is in this community, this community that points to the resurrected Christ that can actually say there is hope. The wrong, the wicked, the evil, it will not stand in the end. How do we know? Because the end has come to the present. Jesus is a foretaste of the restoration of all things right before them. And when they see him, when we see him, we can know with, with absolute certainty that God is making all the sad things come untrue. I love that line in the Lord of the Rings story. In, in the second book, when, when all hope seems lost, when, when the enemy is marching towards the heroes and there is no clear path ahead, death is facing them at the door. And then all of a sudden, Gandalf, the, the wizard who had apparently died in order to protect the heroes, comes back and saves the day. And one of the hobbits wakes up from his sleep, thinking that he was dead, and he sees Gandalf and says, Gandalf? I, I thought you were dead. I thought I was dead. Is everything sad becoming untrue? What has happened to the world? When we see the resurrection of Jesus, we have the certainty that everything sad is coming untrue. Every act of wickedness will be no more. There will not be injustice. There will be peace. This new community, they were captivated by this vision. They knew what their mission was to go into the world and to proclaim that hope has come. The end is here in Jesus. And they were to go with their words and their mouths and their actions and their bodies and their hands to take up their role in this unfolding story. Because Jesus is commissioning them to now take that hope and bring it into reality. Bring the end to bear here. We have a vision at Story Church. Not only to see neighbors 
enter into this story shaped by Jesus. But we want to see the gospel transform the lives of family and friends around us so that whole cities would be transformed by the gospel. Look, we want the gospel to take root in such a way that parents are not sending their kids to Lander Elementary hungry and that the school has to provide food for them. We want the gospel to transform lives so that moms and dads, husbands and wives, through patience and understanding and forgiveness and grace that surpasses understanding, holds them together so that families aren't torn apart anymore. We have a vision that one day Mayfield Heights would be such a beautiful and vibrant city that no matter who has moved in here, whether they're from India or East Cleveland or Cleveland Heights or wherever, that they would be welcomed and delighted in with open arms. That no longer would the desire be to make enough to move out further east where there's bigger land and better schools but that this area would be beautiful and that people would come here because they see in the houses and in families and in friendships the glorious hope of the gospel. That is our vision that Jesus has given us. I'm captivated by it, and I hope you are too. What is going to make us ready to go? We're going to need to be a people who are dedicated to prayer, who are rooted in the truth, and who are captivated by this vision. I hope you're ready with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have called us here to be sent out for the good of our neighbor and for your glory. We pray now through your spirit that you would strengthen us and encourage us and equip us so that we would be people who are ready to go. So that when you pour out your blessing on us, Lord, that we take it with boldness and share it with those around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.